and welcome to another edition of the Sabbath School Study Hour. It's so good to be able to have you join us here in the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church in the greater Sacramento area. Uh, we are coming together again this week to uh, continue to study one of my favorite books in the Bible, and that is the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your quarterly with you, uh, make sure that you go ahead and grab that. Most importantly, if you have your Bible, if you don't have your Bible on hand, make sure you go ahead and grab that as well. We are in lesson number 12 this week. And uh, so again, lesson number 12 in the quarterly study of Ephesians. And, uh, and so we are close to wrapping it up, friends. We are in the last chapter looking at the last key passage. Uh, before we look at that passage here today in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, I want to invite you to take advantage of a free gift offer that we have for you here today. It's called Kingdoms of Time. And uh, this is a great study, uh, looking at the different prophecies and how their fulfillment has uh, come to pass. Almost every prophecy in the Bible has already come to pass, and this book will point out some of those for you. And uh, so go ahead and take advantage of this free gift offer. If you live in North America, that is in Canada and the U.S. or U.S. territories, go ahead and dial the number 1-866-788-3966. Again, that's 1-866-STUDY-MORE and ask for offer number 901. Now, if you'd like a digital copy of this and you'd like to download it to your phone and you have self-service here in the USA, then we are happy to be able to offer that to you as well. All you have to do is text the code SH153 and you want to dial that to the number 40544. If you're outside of North America, you have access to internet, you'd still like to get a free copy of this, we want to make sure that we can get this into your hands. All you have to do is get on the internet, go to the website study.aftv.org front slash sh153. Well, friends, with that said, let's go ahead and open with prayer and ask the Lord to be with us. Father God, we want to thank you so much for blessing us with this time that we have together. I thank you for each and every friend that has joined us, both in the U.S. and around the world. I want to pray that you will bless our time together. I want to pray that you will truly speak to us, that your Holy Spirit will reveal to us the things that you would have us see in regards to this very important truth of success in faith and walk with you. So please bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray, God. Amen. Well, friends, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, the one that we have been studying for almost three months now. And as we go to the book of Ephesians, we're going to the very last chapter, and we're picking it up in verse 10. And this is the last key passage that you'll find in this book of Ephesians, and, uh, and we're just looking at the first part of it. In other words, we're looking at the same passage here today, 10 to 20, uh, that is verses 10 to 20, uh, both today as well as next week, uh, lesson study in lesson 13. And uh, so today we're looking at the bigger context and of the actual passage. And then next week we're going to get into the important details that we find in the different symbolic armor that Paul paints for us in the same passage. 
So let's read it together to start off. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, to withstand, I should say, in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may be, be able to open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so here we have Paul painting a very obvious symbolic picture of the Christian starting his or her day. And Paul here is recommending and encouraging us to be able to put on these different pieces of this spiritual armor. And obviously Paul is speaking in symbolic terms here and concerned to spiritual truths because indeed I haven't, I can't remember the last time I got up in the morning and actually picked up a literal sword and, and put on a literal uh, a metal armor on my chest and, uh, and picked up a literal shield. But I pick up these shield, these, these pieces uh, each morning that I might be able to have spiritual success, that I might be able to find myself fighting the good fight and finishing the race and finding myself with my Lord from day to day until Jesus comes, that we might be able to be together for all of eternity. Now, it's not by coincidence that Paul here is choosing in his symbolic language that of a military symbolism and that he is calling us as Christians, as believers, to battle from day to day, to put on these different uh, pieces of weaponry and, and armament. And, uh, and it's not the first and only time that Paul does this. Um, in fact, as Tuesday's lesson points out for us, there's a couple other places that Paul uses some very similar language. I want to invite you to come with me as we leave Ephesians now. And we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, verses 3 through 6, we find here that um, Paul is using uh, some of the same kind of uh, uh, symbolism here as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, that means as though we walk in our, in our physical fleshly bodies, we do not war according to the flesh. And so we want to pick that up. We're going to pick that up later in a moment here as well. But Paul here is saying, listen, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, when I use this kind of symbolism, I'm not saying pick up a literal sword and go out and start slaying people. No, he wants us to be able to pick up the different war pieces and weapons of spiritual warfare. 
And so he contrasts the two in verse 3. Verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so Paul here is saying, listen, our job is to bring, as it says at the end of the verse, bring into, into, into every thought, into captivity, to the obedience of Christ. And so Paul here again is further clarifying what he's also talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, is that he's saying that our enemy is not actually a seen enemy, it's an unseen enemy. And we are battling and, and we are in war with powers that are much stronger than us, much more intelligent than us, far more older than we are. And, uh, and yet, with God's strength and with his armor, we can succeed. And the war that we are called into is the war that is uh, not carnal, but pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so we want to pick that up as we continue on through these particular verses. I want to invite you to come with me now to um, 1 Thessalonians. And this is another letter that Paul himself wrote, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in this case. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, We find here again that Paul is leaning on this military symbolism. Verse 6, it says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so, friends, here again, we find that he is leaning upon this military armament and, uh, and symbolism in concern to success in the war that God has called us into once we make ourselves uh, faithful followers of God. And so, again, a reflection of Tuesday's lesson in this last week's lesson on this passage, on our key passage in Ephesians 6, we find that Ephesians 6 is just one example that demonstrates that Paul understood that God has revealed in the scriptures right from the get-go that there is an overarching grand theme of warfare that is taking place, not only from Adam's creation forward, about 6,000 years of Earth's history, but even before that as well. And we'll pick that up as we look at some of the highlights in those first chapters of the first book of Genesis. Yes, overall, the book of, of, of the Bible the Word of God reveals that there is a war, and it reveals it from the very second chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, and it carries through and weaves its way through all of the scriptures until you get to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this ongoing war is a war between God and between Satan, between truth and between error. It is between good and evil. The Bible reveals that the war is between God's loyal angels and Satan's rebellious angels, also referred to as demons more than once as well. And then, of course, in that same war, there are those of us who are, choose faith in God and those who are of us who choose against having faith and devotion to God. And so, friends, this warfare is very real, and it's something that the Bible does not leave us guessing on. In fact, it gives us lots and lots of information and concern to it. 
particularly do we find that great warfare taking place right from Genesis 2 all the way through to Genesis chapter 12, in which we'll look at some highlights here today. And then, of course, it's threaded and revisited several times throughout the rest of the scriptures. And so I want to invite you to walk with me as we look at some very fascinating and important highlights of this overarching truth. Now, again, as I said earlier, we don't have to go very far in the Bible to be able to start to pick up that there is something that has gone wrong in the universe even before Adam's creation, even before God made this, this planet that used to be lifeless and dark and water covered, and then he turned it into teeming life, a planet that was teeming with life and, and with, with beauty and, uh, and so on. And uh, so far before that, we find that there is something that has gone wrong. I want to invite you to come with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 through 17. This is just shortly after God had created Adam and, uh, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of Adam, was intended to be the very beginning of Adam's experience and kind of starting to absorb and enjoy his surroundings and environment and then to be able to, of course, to expand that as God had earlier on said to him, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, uh, and so certainly the Garden of Eden was not the beginning and end of God's intention for Adam's experience, but this is where it begins. In verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so here we find the first command that mankind has ever received. Even before sin entered into the world, God knew that there was a command. And notice how in verse 16, it doesn't say God suggested. It says God commanded the man. And he says, listen, you may eat of all of the trees. And certainly God gave him more trees and more food than he would ever need. But nevertheless, he says, there is one tree that represents something gone wrong, something has turned the switch in a bad way somewhere in the heavens, somewhere in the universe, even before Adam was created. And so God needed to warn him about that. And warn him he did. And he did that very clearly as we read in those two verses. In fact, Eve verifies that very clearly in her conversation with a serpent that's found in the very same tree in the very next chapter. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field in which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the trees in which is in the midst of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so very clearly, Eve reveals here that God had been very fair, loving, and wise in explaining to them that something has gone wrong, that there is an enemy, there is an evil force that now exists in the universe that never existed there before, but nevertheless is a very real danger for Eve as well as her husband Adam. Well, many of you know the rest of the conversation. Sadly, we find that this serpent that's found in the tree is, is beautiful in appearance is very attractive in order to be able to entice and draw Eve's attention into this conversation. 
but we discover very quickly that that beauty ends with the eyes because we found that it was a very lying and deceiving creature that is very much opposed to God and opposed to the ways of God and the law of God as well. And so it reveals that there's a war that obviously began before mankind somewhere in the heavens that has now come to include us here uh, on earth. And, uh, and that is most clarified for us in the very same chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, it says, And so the Lord God said to the serpent, now, God has showed up on the planet just to give us the context again. Adam and Eve had chosen to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, they're full of shame, guilt, fear, all these negative emotions that they never experienced before they ate that fruit, before they made that sinful choice of disloyalty and distrust and dislove towards God. And so God is not leaving the crisis to play out by its own, but instead God has come to be able to rescue mankind he has come to reveal that he has a plan of salvation and a plan to be able to reverse eventually the things in which the choices that Adam and Eve made that day. But we want to pick up this warfare that God reveals so clearly in these same two verses. Verse 14 again, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And so God reveals here, not only is the serpent cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin that day, but it says that you are cursed more than all the cattle and all the other creatures, which very clearly implies that all of creation has been cursed because of the sinful choices of Adam and Eve that day. Verse 15 is where we really want to zero in, though. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, that is descendants, and her seed. And then God zeroes down to a singular male seed from the woman, from the descendants of the woman. He shall bruise your head, that is to crush it with a death blow, and you shall bruise his heel. And so again, we have to remember that the Bible from here on starts to reveal that the serpent represents more than just a creature, more than just an animal that God had planted in the planet Earth when he created all those life forms originally. But rather that the serpent is being used as a medium for a much more powerful force that's behind it. And God speaks to it and he reveals that eventually the Savior, Jesus himself would come to blow, bring a bruise, a death blow upon the head of that serpent. And of course, the Bible reveals, especially in Revelation chapter 12, as well as other places, that that death blow was Jesus' death on the cross. When he died for the sins of humanity and rescued us from our sin. And you shall bruise his heel. Indeed, the serpent, the devil behind that serpent, indeed, had bruised the heel of the Messiah, of Jesus, in a very painful way when Jesus died on that cross. But what we want to pick up more than anything else in verse 15 is it says, God says, I will put enmity. Friends, enmity is not a positive word. Enmity means friction, disagreement, uh, uh, two forces that are against each other. And God says, and I will put that enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And from this point on, God uses a woman to represent God's faithful people, his church. 
I will put enmity between you, serpent, between you, Satan, and between the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, these, this term seed, again, is a, is a very common term in ancient biblical times and throughout the Bible to represent descendants, human descendants. What is God revealing here? God is revealing a very sober truth to Adam and Eve that day. He has revealed to Adam and Eve as well as to you and I today that from that point forward, there would always exist two camps within humanity. There would be the camp of those who choose by faith, according to their free will, to surrender and obey God and worship Him as the Lord God Almighty that He is. The one that is the source of all love and all truth and all righteousness. The source of all true peace and joy. And then those who would choose against God, those who would rebel against Him, in different levels and in different measures, in different ways. But friends, no matter what your level is, God has made it clear here that there is a war now not only between angelic forces, the loyal angels of God and Jesus Himself and then Satan and his disloyal, rebellious angels, but also between those in the populations of humanity that choose God and those who choose against Him. Very sober reality that he reveals in the very third chapter of Genesis. And so again, some people have falsely concluded and wrongly concluded that it wasn't until the New Testament came along and the apostles and Jesus and so on that this great controversy between good and evil, between angelic forces of evil and angelic forces of righteousness and holiness uh, really wasn't fully revealed and couldn't really be understood until Jesus and the disciples and the apostles came along. But that is not true, friends. All you need to do is go to the very first or the second and third chapter of Genesis. Right off the go, we find here that God is revealing that something has gone wrong before Adam and Eve were created. Evil had already come to exist in the universe. And now, sadly, because of the choices of Adam and Eve, all humanity, every single human being that is born needs to make a choice as they make their way through this life experience. Which camp will you be found in? This is one of the million dollar questions that the Bible begs us to ask and even further begs us to make the choice to be in the camp of God, the camp of truth, the camp of righteousness, the camp of love and joy and peace that it can only be found in a walk with God. Well, for many of us, this is further clarified and many of us are familiar with it if you studied this subject before, but I know that this program is one that reaches people that have never studied this subject and so let's find this confirmed crystal clear for us not on the first book of the Bible anymore but we go all the way to the end of the Bible to the book of Revelation and as we find ourselves in the book of Revelation we go to the 12th chapter and we're going to read verses 7 through uh, 9. Revelation chapter 12 and we're going to read verses 7 through 9. In verse 7 it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael, what broke out in heaven? War broke out. The same subject, isn't it? Now the Bible records a number of physical battles and wars that took place in Israel's day and between other nations and so on. The war that we're accustomed to with, with in those days, swords and clubs and spears and so on. Today we have guns and missiles and fighter jets and so on. But this war is different. And many times throughout the scriptures, including Ephesians chapter 6, God is talking about a spiritual warfare, a warfare for truth and for obedience and worship. Verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so this war is revealed very crystal clear to indeed, as Genesis chapter 2 and 3 reveals, had to have taken place somewhere else in the universe, somewhere else in the heavens outside of this planet. But Revelation indeed tells us exactly where it broke out. It broke out in the headquarters of the universe where the throne of God himself is placed. In heaven. In verse 7, 9 it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that dragon of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And so here we have a very crystal clear summary of, of some very crystal clear revelation that we find in the first chapters of Genesis. Again, we come to the last book. And indeed, right in the middle of that last book, we find that God confirms and clarifies that truth for you and I. It doesn't only stop in Revelation chapter 12, by the way. If we fast forward to Revelation chapter 16, we find there described the battle of Armageddon. And many of our Christian friends around the world today have been misled and have, have come to false conclusions that really aren't in, in harmony with the scriptures and with the overall context of the battle of Armageddon and the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 and many other places in the scriptures. They're not talking about a literal battle between, between forces that include machine guns and, and, um, and, and air force uh, fighter jets and, 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 and air, airship, or I should say, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, all these different kinds of, of, of physical uh, weapons of war. No, the Battle of Armageddon, again, is that last clash in a great long-standing war that broke out in heaven, was transferred to this earth when God cast out the disloyal and rebellious angels and the leader of those angels, Satan himself, down to this earth. And now there is a population of humans on both sides and the population of angels on both sides. And all four of those camps are found right here on this planet. And that war is climaxing with the final battle within that war because we have to remember that every war, a long-standing war, has a number of battles that take place within the war. And the last battle within this warfare is the Battle of Armageddon. And it's not some physical, literal uh, clashing of forces between God's people and Satan's people and, and, and then eventually Jesus' and his angels with heat-seeking missiles and so on. No, friends. It's a battle for the mind. It's a battle for loyalty. Will you choose God and surrender to Him and allow Him to write His law upon your heart? Will you choose His law in its fullness? Will you surrender everything to Him and make Him your Lord and your Savior? Will you choose the truth as God has revealed it in His Word or will you accept the traditional false counterfeit religious teachings that are also propagated and will be propagated in the name of Christ and in the name of Christianity right to the end of time. And so we find that in Revelation chapter 16. And then when we come to Revelation chapter 19, in the last half of that chapter, we have a very powerful symbolic rendition and description of the second coming of Jesus Christ with all the loyal angels of heaven. And, uh, and, and, and friends, Jesus is pictured with his angels on white horses. This is an animal that is used in warfare. And not only that, but Jesus is described as having a sword, which is the word of God itself. 
as Ephesians chapter 6 describes, but rather than it found in his hand, very importantly, we find that it is described, the sword is described as extending from his mouth. Now again, friends, obviously, Jesus and his angels are not going to need horses to travel from heaven to here. This is a symbolic rendition. Obviously, Jesus doesn't walk around with a large, sharp, two-edged sword sticking out of his mouth, knocking over dishes and getting people scared and running in different directions that they might not be slain by this awkward sword coming up. No, friends, it represents the sword, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, for the sword itself is living and powerful like a two-edged sword, dividing the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow, discerning the intents and the thoughts of every heart. No, friends, the sword that is described there is symbolic of, of is military symbolism, as Ephesians chapter 6 uses. But it's describing, again, the real battle, the real warfare. And that is the warfare for the heart, for the mind, for truth, for worship, for obedience, for or against God's law. Now it is true that there are some physical forces that take place within this war. There is no doubt about that. And by the way, almost always, at least right up to the second coming of Jesus, almost exclusively, at least on the human front, the physical forces that are taking place between the camp of humanity that is for God and the camp of humanity that is against God, it is those that are rebelling against God that are the only ones on record and ever will be that actually pick up weapons and will use force to torture, threaten, imprison, and even execute those who insist on staying on God's side. But nevertheless, that physical force does carry over as the wicked side of humanity and of the angels that are also inspiring that humanity um, to be able to use physical force against those who are faithful to God that are living by the sword of the spirit and not of the sword of steel. Now, friends, the fact that this war is predominantly about loyalties, obedience, philosophies, ideas, it's a battle for the mind, could it be clearer than from the mouth of Jesus himself in the very last hours of his life, just shortly before he was crucified? We find here that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane after he had prayed three times and surrendered his life to God, asking God to give him the strength to be able to go forward and allow himself to be apprehended, arrested by his enemies, to be mocked, to be beaten to the point of being unrecognizable and then cruelly nailed to a cross where he bore the sins of the world upon himself. And as he was about to be apprehended and as the authorities, both Roman and Jewish, were apprehending Jesus, Peter and the other disciples asked Jesus at the same time as they were reaching their hand for their swords of steel, drawing it out of their sheaths, Peter, being the, the one at the forefront of the disciples and the apostles, said, Lord, shall we fight for you? And Peter, before Jesus even answered, went up and he attempted to be able to take the life of one of the servants of the high priest, but he only was able to lop off his ear. And Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 52, where he says, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so Jesus says, take your steel sword and put it back in its place. I have not called you into a warfare of steel swords. I have called you into a warfare that involves the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. 
You know, I've always said whenever I'm in an evangelistic series and of course the opening night, you're the most nervous. You've invested so much time and energy into opening that series and, and so much resources and money has been invested in getting the word out. And now the, the seats are starting to be filled with people and you're nervous in the back and we're asking, does the audio work? Is the, is the slides going to work? Is this going to come together? Is everything going to work in such a way that we'll be able to give glory to God and help the people to know the truth? And I've always responded in that nervousness to the elders and the deacons and everybody else that's helping. I say, as long as we have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, we're going to succeed tonight, friends. Because that's all the apostles had. In fact, most of the Word of God was in their mind. They didn't even have a printed Bible. You have to remember, they didn't, Paul didn't walk around with a Bible. He didn't stand up in the front and say, turn here and turn there. Because he couldn't turn there and neither could you. They just, the book of Isaiah alone was about this long and about that thick. You know, it was a long papyrus kind of, kind of uh, scroll that you had to unroll from this long wooden uh, rod in the middle of it and roll it out like this and then read it. You know, they did do that during scripture as Jesus is on record of reading from Isaiah and so on. As long as you have the spirit, the, the spirit of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the Holy Spirit. This is the source of the success of the apostles in their day and is the only source of success that we'll have today. Jesus said, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus said the same thing to the governor whose name was Pilate that was in charge of the Roman trial of Jesus. And as Jesus was in private company with, the, with, the, with this Roman governor in his secret quarters or his private quarters, the Gospel of John chapter 18 verses 36 and verse 37 records some of that conversation that took place between Pilate, the governor, and that of Jesus. And the governor is inquiring him. He's nervous. He's asking, are you a king? Are you a threat to the kingdom of, 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 of the empire, which was the Roman Empire at that time? And Jesus answered and put him at ease. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And so Jesus very clearly revealed that his intention was never for a Christian to pick up the sword and fight for the gospel. Never to pick up the sword and fight for the side of God. Never a sword of steel, but also always a sword of the spirit. Pilate therefore said to him in verse 37, are you a king then? Because now Jesus is talking about a kingdom, and a kingdom always has a king. Again, Jesus is, is attempting to put Pilate at ease and say, listen, I'm no threat to your throne, to your position, to King Herod's position, to the, to the, the, to the Caesar, the emperor of Rome's position. No, my kingdom is not of this planet. So Pilate says, are you a king? Then Jesus answered, you have rightly said that I am a king which would make sense. He just said he had a kingdom. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. My sheep know my voice, as Jesus said in John chapter 10. And my, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. Now this is no small statement by Jesus. And it's no small statement in relationship to the great warfare that we're talking about because at the very heart of the warfare is not only worship and loyalty to God, but in the heart of that worship and loyalty is found a love for the truth. Have you decided to stand for the truth? Is the truth of the word of God number one to you? Is this, is this where you find your final authority? 
Is this where the argument to the questions end when there is a clear, thus saith the Lord? That's what Jesus came to verify and to tell you and I that every time we come to a thus saith the Lord and it's crystal clear to you and me in its proper context and its proper understanding as the Holy Spirit in the context is revealed to you, that is your final word, the final authority. It comes from the throne of God. Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Friends, there is a lot of voices in this world. There's a lot of individuals in, in the religious business. And I'm not talking only about Islam or, or, or Buddhists and, and our friends in, in Hinduism and so on. No, I'm talking about under Christianity as well. There's a lot of voices, friends. There's a lot of individuals that seem very dedicated to Jesus that seem very close and, and very genuine in their walk with Christ. But Jesus very clearly tells us that everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus says truth and the voice of God are one. And there's too many individuals in the religious business today that claim that they hear and follow the voice of Jesus, that Jesus is their friends, but they're not very much friends with the truth. Jesus says, those who are of the truth hear my voice. That's a qualifier, friends. And this is directly related to this war between error and truth. Satan is the propagator of error, religious counterfeits, including counterfeit Christianity. And then, of course, there's those who are finding themselves hearing the voice of Jesus because they are into and love the truth, the sword of the Spirit, is ultimate to them. Now at the same time as saying that, I do want to point out something very interesting that many Christians have misunderstood in regards to some of these statements in regards to that truth. For indeed it is true that God has not called us to pick up the sword, the steel of the sword of the steel in order to fight for the gospel and to fight against powers of evil in relationship to truth and error in regards to religious things and moral truth. But Jesus does endorse bearing arms in certain circumstances, including his first disciples, including the apostles. Now, some of you may not have pictured Paul and Peter and James and Bartholomew and Thomas and these other apostles of Jesus Christ putting on a sword, a literal sword of steel each morning as they went out to go about their business. Uh, now, they did actually put on a sword every morning and they did wear a sword of steel. And at times they may have had to use it, but they never used it in warfare concerning truth and religious authority. Never. Jesus does endorse bearing arms in certain circumstances for self-defense and defending others. You need to show me in the Bible, Pastor Sean, if you're going to make a statement like that. Well, let's go to Luke chapter 22 and verse 36. Again, friends, Jesus here is is winding down his public ministry. He knows that he's about to be shortly arrested. He knows that some of these words that he's sharing with his disciples are some of the last words. And in fact, he may have already been resurrected again. I'd have to double check that context. Luke chapter 22 and verse 36, the statement of Jesus is this, as he sends out his disciples. He says, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. 
And so Luke chapter 22, verse 36, as Jesus, he's reflecting on the first time he sent his disciples out. The first time he said, leave your money bag, leave your, your extra clothing, don't take anything but the clothes on your back and just completely learn to have faith and trust in the providence of God. And they did that and they learned the lessons that they needed to in doing that. But then the next time he sent them out, he said, now this time I want you to take with you your money bag. I want you to take a knapsack with your extra clothes and if you don't have a sword, make sure that you sell a garment and you wear a sword for your self-protection as well. And, uh, and so Jesus does endorse bearing arms in certain circumstances. Well, let's return to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 and 5, and of course we don't have time during our lesson, short time here today to be able to look at that. But in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, we find here some fascinating information concerning the first family and the descendants that, that kind of derived from that. We have Abel and Cain, the first two Sons that were born, Cain born, born first and then Abel. Sadly, we find that Abel is in the camp of faith and loyalty to God and Cain is choosing disloyalty and rebellion against God. Eventually, Cain kills his younger brother Abel because of that. And again, we find that the forces of evil, those in the camp of Satan, will sometimes resort to physical force against God's saints, but never the other way around has been the plan of God or the intent or will of God. So we have Cain, and then we have uh, Abel is killed, but then God replaces Abel with another son of Adam and Eve by the name of Seth. And those two men, as they began their families and their family tree, not exclusively, but exclusively enough that the Bible reveals that the lineage of both and the legacy that both brought upon the planet represents both camps. Camp of Cain is the camp of, of those who are the seed of the serpent. The camp of Seth are those from the lineage and the, and the, and the family tree of Seth. And of course, there's crossover there because God gave everybody. There were certain grandsons and great-great-grandsons of Cain that said, you know what? I don't want this. I want God. I want love. I want peace. I want truth. And they leave the camp and the lineage and family tree and they go over to Seth. And the other way around, sadly, as well. Some of the descendants of Seth certainly had used their free will and were tempted and successfully to go into the lineage of that of Cain. But we find a very obvious lineage here as we look at the two. Seth's descendants uh, began to intermarry, sadly, with Cain's descendants. And whenever this is taking place on a larger scale, there's always been apostasy that has results. And, uh, and sadly, we find that global apostasy was, global apostasy was the eventual result, and, uh, and, and the descendants of Seth were reduced to Enoch's great-grandson by the name of Noah. And so Enoch had left a powerful legacy, and because of that, his great-grandson was chosen to be also a prophet, even as Enoch was. And Enoch had a wife. He had uh, three sons and three daughter-in-laws. And those eight people were the last ones standing in the camp of the faithful. All the rest of humanity were the seed of the serpent. And this is the reason God needed to be able to preserve mankind further to be the, so the Messiah could come and give opportunity to die for the sins of the world and to be a a witness for truth to all of humanity. And so, of course, the flood came along. And right after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, we find that two camps begin to emerge from that first family as well. 
And so we have two families that all, human, all of humanity is uh, derived from. You can trace all of the family tree of all humanity back to Noah and his wife, and then back from there to Adam and Eve. Those two families, both families, have one or more of the sons that choose for God and one or more of the sons that choose for Satan. Both families emerge into two camps. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 26 and 27. Time is flying here, so we'll just get as much ground as we possibly can. Genesis chapter 9. We're going to Genesis chapter 9, 26 and 27. This is a prophecy of Noah himself. And he's talking to his sons and he said, And blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And so as we read these prophetic words of the prophet Noah himself, we read that he points out two of his sons, that of Shem and Japheth, because they were both faithful. They had chosen the camp of the seed of the woman, the church of God, the faithful. And even though Noah chooses, and under inspiration, not to point out the very name of his third son, Ham, he does point out one of Ham's sons, which is that of Canaan. And he says, may Canaan be the servant of the descendants of both Japheth and Shem. Why? Because Ham's heart is being revealed here. Ham left a horrible legacy. He was the new Cain, we could say, after the flood. And Shem was the new Seth. And, uh, and again, we have this very obvious lineage and legacy that the both of them left in that family tree and lineage that followed after their lifetimes. God was revealing through the prophetic words of Noah that indeed Ham's son had gone sour. Um, Ham's uh, um, uh, heart had gone sour. And, uh, and Cain, Canaan reveals Ham's heart and legacy. Now we look at this plus Genesis chapter 10 and verses and chapter 11, and it records the descendants of all of these three sons of Noah. And again, Ham is very obviously the new Cain. He leads in a rebellion against God. He is the father of Canaan. Now, of course, that's the Canaanite, the land of Canaan, the wickedness that was so great that God judged them and drove them, drove them out of that land that God's people, the seed of the woman, might take that prime land. Mizraim was another son of Ham. Now, Mizraim became the father of the Philistines, which was long, one of the longest standing, most prominent enemies of God in Israel. And then we have Cush, and Cush was the father of Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. And Nimrod became the founder of Babel, the city of Babel, which then eventually started to lead into the biggest project post-flood, which was the Tower of Babel. And uh, so Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, in the legacy of Ham, is the one that leads out in this great rebellion of humanity against God. Not only that, but Nimrod also developed Nineveh, another long-standing enemy and city of, against God. Also developed into the people of Sidon on the on the Mediterranean Sea, another city of wickedness and rebellion against God. Sodom and Gomorrah are also the descendants of Ham. All of these peoples, cities, and land actively opposed God and his people for hundreds of years. And all of these cities and countries that stood against God and against Israel, against religious truth, it's not by coincidence that Babylon was the most prominent and therefore used even on a spiritual, symbolic uh, level right to the end of earth's history as found in the chapters of Revelation. 
In Genesis chapter 11 and 12, we find there Shem's descendants eventually produced much different legacy. Shem had left a legacy that included in his descendancy and the seed of the woman, that of Abraham. Abraham was a great, 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 great grandson of Shem. And then we have Isaac, who was the miraculous son and, and next generation after Abraham. Isaac's Son then was named Jacob, which is the grandson of Abraham and great, great, great grandson of Shem. And, uh, and eventually God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And eventually God used a descendant of Jacob, that of Moses. Again, another descendant of Shem, Shem's descendants and, and legacy and family tree. And, uh, and that developed into the country of Israel with the holy city of Jerusalem as its capital. And all of these became beacons of God's truth for hundreds and hundreds of years. Sometimes God's kings in Israel worked for God in fulfilling God's agenda. And sadly, many times we find in the centuries that God had Israel as his holy nation. Sadly, many times the kings of Israel found themselves working for the devil and for his agenda, the seed of the serpent. This week's lesson opens with an understanding of an outstanding example of this war between God's people and the devil's people as well as the angelic forces that are battling on both sides. And so let's pick up the highlights of that. It's, it's worth looking at because it just brings to life this overarching truth that we started to look at here today. So we're going to go to 2 Kings in chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to quickly read verses 8 through 17. In verse 8 it says, Now the king of Syria was making war with Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp shall be in such and such a place. And the man of God, we're going to find out very quickly, that is Elisha, the prophet Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down here. And so God gave some inside information concerning the plans of Syria, and he gave it to the king of Israel. And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice. And so the king of Israel responded wisely and set up some forces there and made it clear to Syria that they had one up on Syria. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, the king of Syria is saying, Listen, we've got a mole in the house. There's somebody here that's revealing secret information and in our strategies and plans to the enemy. And verse 12 says, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, they have prophetic insight. And so he said, go and see where he is and that I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. And so the CIA of Israel, or of Syria, I should say, was able to find the intelligence that they needed in concern to the location of this man of God. And therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots and his Servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, keep in mind, verse 14, it says a great army. This is not some squad or platoon here. This is, this is real, we're talking hundreds, maybe even thousands of soldiers and chariots. And so the man of God answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Now, friends, this is no small verse in our study here today because this great warfare between good and evil, between God and Satan, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is played out here in this statement. It says, Do not fear for those who are with us. That's one camp, the seed of the woman, are more than those who are with them. That's the seed of the serpent. Do you see that, friends? Elisha is saying, listen, we're outnumbered. On a, on a human terms, we are far but outnumbered. Dothan and its small armed forces that would be inside that city didn't stand a chance. They were far outnumbered by the army of Syria that was surrounding them. And so on the human front, he's saying, listen, we don't stand a chance. But Elisha understood that there's more in the, in the seed of the serpent uh, and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will always outnumber the seed of the serpent, not because there's more humans that are faithful to God. No, Jesus said very clearly that God's people on the human front will always be the minority. But he says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And so, friends, we find here that God has an army and a population of faithful, loyal angels that is far greater than the unloyal and the rebellious and evil human beings that surround us today. And that's what God wanted to teach us in that particular passage. And so as we close today, friends, the million-dollar question that we have to ask is, how do we stay faithful to God until the end? And we have to say, to, as Paul did at the end of his life, how do we join in hand with Paul as he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Well, as we close, we return back to the passage that we began to study this week. And again, we're looking at the larger context, and so we're going to look at the important details of that next week. But in Ephesians chapter 6, we want to answer that million-dollar question in the first verses there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Did you pick that up, friends? God here is telling us that we are to be strong, not in your strength, not in mine, but in the Lord. It says, be strong in the Lord. Paul understood that Paul by himself didn't stand a chance against his own flesh, yet alone against the devil and all his fallen angels. No, Paul understood very clearly that the only way that he was going to succeed in fighting the good fight, of finishing the race, of keeping the faith, and knowing that there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, would give to him on that day, and not only him to him, but all who have loved his appearing. The only reason Paul knew that he would be able to make it to the end faithful and successfully is because he relied on the strength and the power of the Lord, and he would put on the armor of God, and not his own power and not his own armor. And so often in the morning we get up in the morning, we rely on the, on, the, on the tools that humanity and this world offers to us and our own strengths and our own talents. Friends, you have no chance to stand and to continue to stand and withstand the devil 
If you have all the tools and resources that the world can possibly provide, you could be the most talented, intelligent person in the world and you will still not stand a chance. No, if you don't have the power of God and the armor of God, you will never succeed. You need to be able to completely commit to Jesus. You need to be able to give everything to him, to lean on him, to surrender, as it says in Monday's lesson. Monday and Wednesday are crucial. If we are to stand rather than to fall, and indeed we can fall, Jesus tells us, he who does not keep these sayings of mine, when the floods come and the winds blow, the house will be blown down because you have not built your house on the rock. It will fall. Several times in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the opposite of standing. It talks about falling. God doesn't want you to fall away from the faith, friends. He wants you to fight the good fight and finish the race. And the only way we can do that is to totally surrender to God, to lean upon Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, Paul himself made these words. He said, and he said to me, my grace, and this is God speaking to Paul, and he, that is God, said to me, that is Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength, is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds and said, Therefore, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, Paul says, I am strong. Why? Because Paul understood that it wasn't until he understood that he was weak in himself that even though Paul was one of the most educated, one of the most capable speakers, his education was that of a PhD plus level, his intellect was like none other. He was one of the most multi-talented men in the world, but yet he said, without Christ I am nothing, I am weak, I am lost. And so friends, I want to encourage you. Take God's strength, take his power, take his armor, Put on the whole armor of God and pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And God will be with you. Well, friends, we're out of time as we study here together this week. And uh, I want to pray that you'll have a good rest of the week. And, uh, and if it's Sabbath, that you'll have a good Sabbath as well. And we look forward to joining us for part two as we look at Lesson 13 next week as well. God bless you. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want and most important, to share it with others.